And Radio Derb is on the air. Welcome, listeners, from your frigidly genial host, John Derbyshire. Permit me to explain that adverb before you get alarmed. Very occasionally, I'm unable to record my podcast on a Friday. Even, perhaps, unable to record on any day of the week that I should be reporting on. In the happy cases where I know well in advance that this will happen, I pre-record a podcast a week or more in advance. I freeze it and I store it in the voluminous vaults at video.com world headquarters in Berkeley Castle, West Virginia, to be defrosted and posted on the Friday when I'm absent. These pre-recorded podcasts, of course, can't be as topical, as up-to-date as my podcasts normally are, so I put them together from segments in previous Radio Derb podcasts. Segments that I hope listeners will find instructive or amusing, or at the very least that will remind you what we were fussing about, or laughing or crying about at some point in the past. The last time Radio Derb went virtual in this way was back in September of 2021. On that occasion, as I explained in the introductory segment, I reposted seven Radio Derb segments from the years 2013 to 2019. One segment from each year. For this edition... Just to bring us up to date, I shall repost six segments from the years 2020 and 2021. As before, I shall cut and paste the sound clips right out of the original audio files, so sound quality might be somewhat variable. I shall do my best to even it out. Also, as before... I shall bracket each segment with a couple of quick pips, fore and aft, so that you will know when it's today's derb talking and when it's derb from further back in the past. Here we go. This is the Trump segment. There has to be one, so I've put it at the front. Although this edition of Radio Derb goes on the air late Friday, March 31st, I am actually recording this 11 days prior, on Monday, March the 20th. The headliner here on March 20th is that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a black communist George Soros appointee and, of course, a willing tool of our nation's ruling class, has prepared an indictment of former President Donald Trump. All sorts of theories are flying around. Will this obviously political prosecution kill Trump's 2024 presidential ambitions? Or will it reanimate them? Is this just a smokescreen to stop us thinking about Joe Biden's influence peddling? Does Trump have the constitutional authority to pardon himself? Etc., etc. By the time you're hearing this, 11 or 12 days from now, some of the theories look better, some look weaker, and no doubt a whole new set of theories have been developed. I'm as curious as the rest of you, but I can't cover that here. What I can do is take you back in time, three years, to the beginning of Trump's last year in office, to hear him discussing immigration. What prompted me to dig out this particular segment from the annals 
was an address that Trump gave to the 2023 CPAC on March 4th. Again, he had things to say about, yes, immigration. So, this is Trump talking immigration three years on from the Trump that you will be hearing after the pips. We here at vday.com offered you two different points of view on that March 4th CPAC address. Our correspondent A.W. Morgan smiled approvingly at Trump's promises to deal with illegal immigration, complaining only that Trump failed to mention legal immigration. Then four days later, we posted Anne Coulter's column. Anne was not smiling. She was scowling, giving free rein to her Trump disappointment syndrome. I have a case of Trump disappointment syndrome myself, although not as acute a case as Anne's. If Trump is the GOP candidate for president next year, I shall certainly vote for him against any Democrat that I've seen named. But I shall do so without much hope of Trump doing any of the things he promised to do at CPAC on March 4th. Nor even, for that matter, any of the things he promised to do on the 2016 campaign trail. Face it, the man is a bag of wind. The only reason to vote him another term as president is to stick a finger in the uni party's eye. At the time of the following clip, January 2020, my Trump disappointment syndrome was already well advanced. Here I was, airing it. And then there's Trump disappointment syndrome. I read the blogs, the comment threads and Twitter. It's not just me. A lot of Trump's 2016 voters, if not exactly disgruntled, are far from being gruntled. Let's face it, our guy is soft as wet putty. Easy meat for the Chamber of Commerce shills. A year ago, a year ago this weekend, he was tweeting out to reassure H-1B guest workers that tweet changes are soon coming which will bring both simplicity and certainty to your stay including a potential path to citizenship end tweet my reaction to that at the time was yo mr president these are not your voters these are not your supporters these are the people being hired in as cheap labour to take your supporters' jobs. However long it took you to compose and send out that tweet, that's time away from what you should be doing, addressing American voters. That was my main reaction. My secondary reaction was weary dismay that Trump doesn't know where the hyphen goes in H-1B. For crying out loud, man, you're the president! How are you going to control it if you can't even spell it? A great many other commentators reacted the same way to Trump's positioning himself as the guest workers' president. Did he learn anything from those reactions? Not a thing. Here he was, a year later, just last Friday, talking to Laura Ingram on the same topic. In case you didn't catch it, here is the relevant part. 
We don't have a tight labor market. If we had a tight labor market, we'd be seeing real increases in wages. Yeah. I hear that your team is planning on advocating more foreign workers coming in for some of these high-tech companies. So I'm very concerned about that, I'm as are a lot of your supporters. And so is uh, Mark Levin a little bit. Yeah, we're concerned and because so Americans, you ran on America no, no, Lou Dobbs is concerned, too. But I'll say, Lou, here's the problem. I'm demanding that Japan and all these companies, the countries that have these massive, we have tr trade deficits like nobody's ever seen before. I say, you got to open up. I call Prime Minister Abe, he's a friend of mine, I say, Shinzo, you got to open up more plants in the United States. And they tell me, we want to do it, we want to do it. They start opening. They can't get labor. We need help. Otherwise, we could just say, don't if open up. If they couldn't get labor, plants. wages would be going up. Uh, wages wages aren't are going, going up. Not, not in the high-tech industry. Right, We're look, seeing a plateauing look, of wages. They wanted 3% and it went up 2.9%. In the last two years, wages have gone up more than they have in 25 years. But for Google, why reward Google? Google's working against uh, no, you no, in no, this I don't campaign. want to reward Google. Those I'm, not, guys I'm will, not a fan. All they I'm want is low-skilled workers, Laura, Mr. I'm not President. a fan of Google, but I'm a fan workers. of great companies, okay? You didn't run on bringing more foreign workers into the United States. We have to allow smart people to stay in our country. You graduate number one in your class at Harvard. You graduate yeah, from the Wharton School of Finance. Of no, it's want. not. It's yeah, a lot. But you ran on people training their foreign replacements. That You ran against that. You, you, uh, Americans, it's humiliating for an American worker to work for a company for 30 years. Now it's told you got to train your, your foreign replacement. is going to live in Korea and you're going to pay him 20%. No, no, that's different. That's, I, I would never do that. But we do need workers in our country. And I do want an immigration policy. Policy. Nobody's been better on immigration than me. By the way, and we won the funding for the wall, and the wall's been built anyway because I was taking it out of the military and everything else, and now it's easier. We need people. I got Foxconn to go into Wisconsin. They have to get people. They, they spent a fortune. They built the most incredible plant I've ever seen. In Wisconsin, Foxconn, they but make all the apples. why should we have American stuff. graduates of colleges and universities taking no, those jobs? We do, but we don't have enough of them. We're not, we don't have enough of them. And we have to be competitive with the rest of the world, too. The companies want to hire these people. And well, they, they want can't. to hire people they can hire for the cheapest amount because that, I'm not that's talking what about they want. cheap. I'm talking about brain power. Right. They want to hire smart people. And those people are thrown out of the country. Well, you can't do that. Well, you ran on America first. I'm going to, anyway. No, I'm no, this keep, is America first. All right. I'm going to keep Excuse me. I just on. have to finish this. Yeah. If we tell smart people to get the hell out, well, that's, that's not, that's not what we're saying. That's it a always bad ends, thing. There's, there's a never-ending appetite on the part of corporate America to bring in as much cheap labor as possible to drive down Laura, wages. I have that's so many happen. companies coming into this country. You're not going to have to worry about it. It's always going to be a shortage. If somebody's smart sitting in this position, yeah. we have so many companies coming in from Japan. Japan's doing many car companies. China now is going to start building building a lot of things here. You know, they haven't been doing it too much. We have so many companies wanting to come in, and they don't have the labor, but All they're right. coming in. We're doing great. Our country's doing great. Our economy's doing great. A couple of things to be said about that. There is a chicken and egg issue with the supply of tech workers. If we bring in a great mass of foreigners to do software development, that zone of employment becomes foreignized. That has two negative consequences. Negative consequence one. As the blogger Half Sigma observed in the classic text on this back in 2007, foreignization on that scale reinforces the idea of IT work as a low-prestige occupation. To quote Half Sigma, Americans see an industry full of brown people speaking barely intelligible English, and this further lowers the industry's prestige. End quote. You may say that's deplorable, and you may be right, but it's how human nature works. Negative consequence two. As foreignization advances and early entrants rise into middle management positions, they will preferentially hire their fellow countrymen over Americans. This effect is magnified by some large multiple 
when the foreignization is sourced mainly from just one or two countries, as it currently is. Those two points mean that smart, ambitious young Americans don't find a career in IT appealing. They go for the law degree or the MBA, lines of work that have some prestige. Foreignization isn't the solution to a shortage of willing American IT workers. It's the cause of it. And yes, it keeps salaries depressed. Laura hit the main point. If companies were as desperate for tech workers as the president claimed, salaries would be soaring. They're not. Even if a politician like Trump was aware of these niceties, the thought of a complete moratorium on guest workers might deter him. Suppose it went into effect. No more H visas or OPTs. Current holders of guest worker visas to return home when their visas expire. Wouldn't that be like cutting off the oxygen supply, leaving IT gasping as its stored reservoirs of talent dwindle? Well, sure, it might be just a short-term effect that would correct itself. A short-term negative effect can lose you an election, though. I would urge the President to try thinking long-term for a change. It wouldn't have to be that long-term. Young Americans would soon rise to the challenge, as they saw salaries going through the roof. Most IT work is not that difficult. A smart kid can learn IT skills in a few weeks. There are twenty-somethings out in Silicon Valley right now, making six-digit salaries, who never went to college. Our skills economy is a lot more flexible than Trump seems to think. Cast down your bucket where you are, Mr. President. As a race realist, I have given over a fair portion of my podcast to commentary on the hypocrisy and injustices of Jim Snow America. The race nonsense sometimes makes me laugh, sometimes makes me cry, and sometimes makes me mad. And then... Other times I'm just sick and tired of the whole damn fool business and wish it would stop. That's the mood I was in when I recorded this segment for the podcast on June 12th, 2020. I have a dream today, brothers and sisters. I have a dream. My dream is of an America that has embraced race realism. Yes, I have a dream that one day race differences in educational success will be as calmly, dispassionately accepted as race differences in athletic success. That race differences in criminal arrest and incarceration rates will be regarded with no more anger or alarm than sex differences in those same rates that different social outcomes by race will be understood as caused not by the malice of our fellow citizens, but by ordinary processes of nature. I have a dream that one day we shall discard magical thinking about race, that the notion of an invisible vapour or miasma called racism permeating the atmosphere and intoxicating our minds, will seem as quaintly absurd as the four humours theory of ancient medicine, or the luminiferous ether of 19th century physics. I have a dream that one day poor white children will not have to endure being lectured about their privilege 
by rich black adults. I have a dream that one day soon, after sixty years of futile efforts to change what cannot in the nature of things be changed, sixty years of twisting our constitution and our jurisprudence into knots to pretend that different statistics by race can only be caused by white people's ill will, sixty years of vast public expenditures on educational and social programs that deliver no benefits at all, well, other than to those who pocket the expenditures, that one day soon, after sixty years of futility and waste, we shall accept race differences as calmly and as prudently as we accept the laws of thermodynamics. I have a dream that with the black homicide rate at eight times the white rate, and with discrepancies of a similar size having existed since reliable records began 180 years ago, an organisation calling itself Black Lives Matter will address itself to bringing black homicide numbers down to the white level, or better yet, to the Asian level, or else be laughed out of the public square. I have a dream that race differences in outcomes, which are mere statistical abstractions remote from our everyday dealings, will one day matter as little to us as personal differences in outcomes. I shall never be a skilled violinist, or a good tennis player, or a creative mathematician. Not because of malice, racism, or privilege on the part of my fellow citizens, but because of my own abilities and inclinations, which, like almost everyone else's, are middling and unspectacular. I do not lose sleep over this. I absolutely do not take it as an occasion to insult and berate my fellow citizens or deprive them of their rights. I have a dream that our nation's past will one day be cherished for having made possible our present security and prosperity that the ignorance and misdeeds of that past be kept in sight, on a shelf, accessible to all, but never dominating our view of what our ancestors were, the heroism they displayed in defence of our civilization, and the great good things they did. I have a dream that one day freedom of association which picks no man's pocket and breaks no man's leg, will be restored to us. I have a dream that the evil and divisive doctrines of disparate impact and affirmative action will be scrubbed from our jurisprudence, that hiring into civil service work, including police work and firefighting, will be strictly meritocratic, and that young black Americans will no longer, just to satisfy the whims of smug college admissions officers and innumerate jurists, will no longer be pushed into academic college programs they can't cope with and will drop out from. I have a dream that my two beautiful children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. Radio Derb isn't all political and social commentary. From time to time, I indulge myself in some literary criticism. Here I was doing so in January 2021, right after Joe Biden's inauguration. Poetry, yes. We got some poetry at the inauguration on Wednesday. At any rate, we were told we'd gotten some. 
This was after Joe Biden's swearing-in. A young black lady stepped up and read us a poem of her own composition. I knew where I was here. I covered this topic in Chapter 4 of my 2009 space-time-bending classic, We Are Doomed. That was in reference to a different black lady poet, Elizabeth Alexander, who read one of her creations at Barack Obama's first inauguration. Quote from myself. Pretty much all current establishment poetry, the kind of poetry that will get you picked to read at a presidential inauguration, traipses round and round a narrow track of victimization, racism, sexism, and the rest of the dreary catalogue of modern grievance culture. All this dismal solipsism and picking at historical scabs might be easier to take if it was delivered with any art or wit. No, there is nothing here but formless stream-of-consciousness drivelling, padded out with feeble imagery and nonsensical similes. It goes without saying that nothing rhymes or scans here. I suppose that would be acting white. Nor is there any familiar form to rest the eye on. A sonnet. Straightforward quatrains. A villanelle. Nothing. Nothing worth remembering. Nothing striking. Nothing amusing. Nothing of universal appeal. Nothing that owes anything to the magnificent centuries-long tradition of English verse. Only the monotonous, structureless, subliterate whining of nursed and petted victimhood. End quote. This week's poetess was 22-year-old Amanda Gorman of Los Angeles, who basks in the title National Youth Poet Laureate. True to my remarks in We Are Doomed, her poem was not a poem, not by the standard I apply. That standard, the condition for my being willing to call a composition a poem, that standard is the two out of three rule. Here are the three. One, it rhymes. Two, it scans. Three, it makes sense. If at least two of those three conditions pertains, it's a poem. If not, not. Paradise Lost scans and makes sense, but it doesn't rhyme. It's a poem. Jabberwocky rhymes and scans, but doesn't make sense. It's a poem. If I hadn't had that third glass of wine, I bet I could come up with something that rhymes and makes sense, but doesn't scan. As it is, I shall, as math textbooks say, I shall leave it as an exercise for the listener. Miss Gorman's inaugural effort scores zero, so it's not a poem. It doesn't rhyme, except accidentally here or there. It doesn't scan, except ditto. And it doesn't make sense, except ditto again. If you want to judge for yourself, American Renaissance on Thursday posted the poem with annotations by one of their readers, who leaves himself anonymous. Hey, the guy doesn't want to lose his job, his credit cards, his Facebook page and his Twitter and Amazon accounts. Once again, that was posted at Amren on January 21st under the heading, In Case You Missed the Inaugural Poem.
After all that negativity, I should say that Miss Gorman's composition was not as whiny as one might have expected from her Wikipedia page. There we read that, quote, Gorman's art and activism focus on issues of oppression, feminism, race and marginalization, as well as the African diaspora. End quote. In fact, the bits of Ms. Gorman's poem that make sense are not that whiny. Here and there it's quite upbeat, I think. There is only one little flash of solipsism. Quote, we, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother, can dream of becoming president, only to find herself reciting for one. End quote. Enough with the slavery already, though. We're all descended from slaves at some remove. If I had to assign Ms. Gorman's poem to any rhetorical genre, it would in fact be the one that I think of as ceremonial woo. Let me explain that. I start from the phrase ceremonial deism, coined 60 years ago by a dean of Yale Law School. Ceremonial deism is the religious references that crop up in the rhetoric of politicians, as when the president closes out a speech by saying, God bless America. It also embraces some customary governmental practices like opening a legislative session with a prayer. Not everybody is happy about ceremonial deism. Dogmatic atheists, most obviously, are not happy with it, and from time to time try to get it stamped out on the grounds that it violates the separation of church and state. I imagine that Hindus don't like it much either, as it is always monotheistic, while Hinduism is polytheistic. Ceremonial deism persists, though, from sheer custom. We're stuck with it until the day, probably less than ten years away now, when Ibram X. Kendi, or one of his disciples, manages to prove conclusively that ceremonial deism is emblematic of systemic racism and white privilege. Well, that's where I get the word ceremonial from. Woo I get from woo-woo, which is defined at the Urban Dictionary as, edited quote, descriptive of an event or person espousing new age theories such as energy work, crystal magic, reiki, reiki, bizarrely restrictive diets, or supernatural slash paranormal slash psychic occurrences. Practices an Eastern influence, yet severely watered down and westernized, pseudo-mysticism, end quote. That is woo-woo. My usage of woo indicates something less loopy than that, uh, just half as loopy, in fact. Rhetoric that tries to be lofty, sublime and inspirational, but that just comes across as pretentious and silly. Woo. Ceremonial woo is what we get from politicians when they're trying to sound uplifting. Joe Biden, in his inaugural speech, for example, quote, Together we shall write an American story of hope, not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness. End quote. That is ceremonial woo. It doesn't make any sense, but Joe's hoping it sounds good. 
Sure, at any given moment I would rather be hoping something than fearing something. The emotion of fear serves a very useful purpose, though, and it should be respected. Face to face with a Bengal tiger bearing its fangs at me, I feel fear, and I should. Contemplating the prospect of losing my job, because lax immigration rules let my employer replace me with a cheaper foreign worker, likewise. As for unity, which turned up a dozen times in Joe's speech, politics in a free country isn't about striving for unity, except in the tautological sense that we are one country under one government. Politics is about the civilised management of disunity, of disagreement. I honestly worry, <laughs> I, I fear, in fact, that a great many of the people now in power over us do not understand this. I fear they think that unity means everyone holding the same opinions about key social issues with those who hold different opinions being shunned and excluded. That does seem to be the direction we're headed in. So, what we got from Ms Gorman was, according to me, ceremonial woo. Going back for a moment to Ms Gorman's Wikipedia page, we learn there that she was educated at a Tony private school in Santa Monica. Annual tuition currently $42,180, followed by Harvard University. Wikipedia doesn't make clear at which of those institutions it was she suffered oppression and marginalization. Both of them, perhaps. Systemic racism is everywhere. To be fair to Ms Gorman yet again, I should add that, education-wise, that at least makes her a tad more oppressed and marginalised than Elizabeth Alexander, Barack Obama's inaugural poetess. Ms Alexander whose father was Secretary of the Army. Ms Alexander attended Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., and then Yale University. Current fees at Sidwell Friends are 46160 On a straightforward arithmetical calculation, that makes Ms Gorman 8.6% more oppressed and marginalised than Ms. Alexander. Ah, so much oppression and marginalisation in the world. So much suffering under the cruel yoke of white privilege. You may want to take a break between this segment and the next to just weep quietly into your hanky for a moment or two. It would, of course, be remiss of me to post segments from 2020 and 2021 without including something about COVID. Here I was in July 2021, the Biden administration coming up to its six-month anniversary. Uh, some COVID news. I don't write half as much about COVID as other opinionators because, as I've been telling you for more than a year, I don't find it the least bit interesting. It's an infection. If you're old, get vaccinated. Old or young, just get on with your life. I know most people are more interested than I am, though. So when a COVID story tickles my fancy, I will post it. This one definitely tickled my fancy. It's from India. Headline from the Daily Mail, July 7th. Two men are arrested in India for saying 
cow urine and dung do not cure COVID-19. What happened was, a member of parliament from India's ruling party, the BJP, has claimed that smearing cow excrement all over your body and drinking cow urine can cure the COVID infection. The Daily Mail story, just to warn you, comes with pictures of people who have done the smearing. These two men who've been arrested had put up Facebook posts criticising this advice. Some loyal members of the BJP took exception to that, saying that the two had, quote, deliberately and willfully insulted and outraged religious feelings and sentiments of BJP workers, end quote. The BJP, you see, is strongly Hindu nationalist, and, as we all know, cows are revered in Hinduism along with, apparently, their waste products. So, the two guys who posted, I'm not even going to attempt their names, these two guys were arrested. At the time of the Daily Mail report, they had been held in jail for 45 days. Under Indian law, you can be arrested and held for a year without any formal charge or trial. Now, BJP sounds like a pretty powerful ruling party. It seems they can do what they like to dissidents from state dogma, even when that dogma concerns covering yourself with cow poop. Thank goodness our ruling party here in the USA doesn't have arbitrary power like that. The Immigration issue is not just America's. Most advanced, prosperous, stable nations are affected. There are lessons to be learned, both positive and negative, from their different approaches. In late August 2021, we were wrapping up our withdrawal from Afghanistan. America's longest war, we were being told. I begged to differ. I posted this segment under the heading The Real Longest War. What is much less encouraging is the failure of democratic processes to make much of a dent in elite enthusiasm for mass immigration. I feel this more than the average American, having spent my early years in Britain. In my teens, that was the late 1950s, early 1960s, I was already listening to my working-class relatives grumbling about the numbers coming into Britain from the Caribbean and South Asia. I was not long out of college when Enoch Powell made his famous speech urging immigration restriction the speech with those memorable phrases that still resonate. Quote, the supreme function of statesmanship is to provide against preventable evils. And, quote, it is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre. End quotes. Powell's speech made him a hero to most Brits. Edited quote from chapter 11 of Simon Heffer's biography of Powell. At the end of April, Gallup had undertaken a survey that showed beyond question that Powell had spoken for Britain. Of those questioned, 74% agreed with what he had said, and only 15% disagreed. An already significant 75% of those questioned had, before the speech, felt immigration controls were not strict enough. After it, that figure rose to 
A reasonable person seeing the polls and the demonstrations in Powell's support, or just talking to ordinary Brits, a reasonable person would have predicted that mass immigration into Britain would thenceforth be a dead letter. That was 53 years ago. What's the situation now? Quotes from an August 13th report out of Migration Watch, which is a rough British equivalent of the Centre for Immigration Studies. Quotes. About half of births in key cities are to mothers born overseas. In the period from 1980 to 2000, immigration by non-UK nationals was running at a net level of about 80,000 per year. However, under successive governments since then, it has averaged around 300,000 a year. Between 40% and 60% of births in three of the UK's largest cities, London, Birmingham and Manchester, are now to mothers who were born overseas. In the northeast of England, only 12% of pupils in state-funded schools are from an ethnic minority background, while this figure is 38% in the West Midlands and 80% in inner London. End quotes. In these 53 years, Britain has been utterly transformed Migration Watch estimates that on current trends, ethnically English children will be a minority in England's primary and secondary schools within 20 years. Population replacement accomplished. This is a complete failure of democracy. The only section of British society that wanted this was a subset of the elite classes. Gentry types addled with post-imperial guilt. University progressives keen to show their moral superiority to the unwashed masses. Plutocrats looking for cheap workers. Most people didn't want it, but it happened anyway. And it's still happening. The smuggling of illegals across the English Channel is now a huge criminal enterprise, with the smugglers making as much as a million dollars from a boat crammed with 40 people. That's a fee of $20,000 or more per passenger. So these are not the wretched of the earth. They are middle class types from poop hole countries in Africa and the Middle East. Britain's government does basically nothing to stop them. 11,000 have come this year. Over there, just as over here, elite determination to replace their own legacy population is a mighty force, much stronger than can be held back by any democratic restraints. It surges on forward, indifferent to public opinion. You've been hearing a lot recently about how Afghanistan has been America's longest war. No. This has been our longest war. Ours and Britain's. From Powell's speech to today, 53 years. From the Hart Cellar Immigration Act to today, 56 years. These have been our longest wars. The big international event in early 22 was, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Russians had been rattling sabres for some weeks before they invaded, though. I heard the rattling and passed comment on it the week of December 10th, 2021. 
The greatest folly in our foreign policy this past 30 years, and yes, that's, that's a crowded field, the greatest folly has surely been our antagonising Russia. Why did we do that? I'm darned if I can figure it out. The Russians dumped communism and fantasies of world conquest. They dismantled the Warsaw Pact and threw themselves open for trade. Why didn't we offer to help any way we could? Russia is a long-standing member of Western civilization, with impressive achievements in science and culture. Russians in general like the USA. Well, they did before we set to vexing them in every way we could think of. Now this Ukraine fuss. It would be nice for the Ukrainians to keep self-government, although it would be a lot nicer if they hadn't made such a dog's breakfast of it this past 30 years. I can't see it's any interest of ours, though. If the Europeans are worried about Russian expansion, let them do something about it. They have three times Russia's population and ten times Russia's GDP. Also nuclear weapons, courtesy of France. It's their neighbourhood, let them deal with it. We have our own problems. That's it, ladies and gentlemen, your defrosted Radio Derb. I apologise for my absence and thank you, as always, for your time and attention. There will be a farm-fresh edition of Radio Derb next week. <laughs>